Kia ora and welcome to The Kaka. I'm Bernard Hickey. It is Wednesday the 13th of September and it's time for me to try something a bit different. I'm going to do a presentation on the pre-election fiscal update which came out yesterday. Uh, I've gone through the document and looked at the various responses and had a think about it and I wanted to try to um, expose a few myths push back at some of the public commentary and hopefully give people uh, a useful longer-term view on the government's finances. So the pre-election fiscal update is something that Treasury does before every election. The idea is it will give all the political parties and voters a clear idea of the exact state of the books just before the election and is designed to avoid any nasty surprises once a new government gets in. It was put in place after um, big shocks that happened in 1984 when the Labour government took over from Rob Muldoon and again in 1990 when the national government under Jim Boulder and Ruth Richardson took over from the fourth Labour government. And is part of the uh, infrastructure for public finance reporting set up by the Public Finance Act and the uh, um, Fiscal Responsibility Act. And it's a pretty good system for uh, making sure that everyone has a fair idea. And the general thought is that the parties will look at the current state of the books and give voters uh, an idea of what their policies would do to the books. Uh, however, the PREFU actually doesn't include the proposed policies of the existing government or the opposition. So what you get is the, um, the baseline, if you like, for the government's books. And what you need to do is inject into that what you think the party's policies will do for it. And the big picture here is that obviously the Labour government got the early look on to, on yesterday's pre-election fiscal update, which showed a, a slight deterioration in the revenue outlook for the government because of a slowdown in economic growth and because of a couple of other uh, particular features. And the, the bottom lines here are, and you've probably already seen this reported, that the government is now forecasting a surplus, um, the so-called OBEGL, uh, operating balance excluding gains and losses. Uh, that, that surplus will now be one year later and be right at the end of the forecast track, so 2026-27. And because of, of those bigger deficits over the next three years, the government will have to borrow an extra $9 billion in uh, through the through its bond program. Um, uh, and remember, this prefu doesn't include what either the government or the opposition are um, proposing. So, for example, the GST exemptions for fresh uh, and frozen uh, um, fruit and vegetables, but not uh, meat or other um, dry goods, that is um, uh, that that's not included. Uh, along with a bunch of other bits and pieces of spending, the free dental care. Uh, so um, that is um, excluded. So you have to keep, take that into account. It also doesn't include some of the longer-term liabilities, which you could argue, and I would, that um, the government has built up, not just this government, but previous governments, by not investing enough in 
transport and housing infrastructure or in water quality or in emissions reduction. And it's worth mentioning this because these accounts are not just a straight set of cash accounts that say this is how much money the government got in and how much it spent last year and what it's expecting its cash accounts to be over the coming years. Uh, This really is an overall set of accounts. So you've got three sets of accounts. You've got the cash accounts, I suppose you could call it. You've got the profit and loss. Um, So things things that are not cash-based but but are very real, things like depreciation. And, of course, uh, if you didn't get the cash in but uh, you're going to get the cash in in the coming year, that's, um, that's an asset. And in the long run, uh, what we have is not just a profit and loss in our cash accounts, but we have a balance sheet. So this is just like any uh, company or organization, you have a snapshot of what your assets and your liabilities are. And in essence, um, as you go through year by year, in theory, you make a profit and that builds up your assets. And if you incur a liability in a year, that reduces your net assets. So you've got assets and liabilities, and then you've got net worth. Uh, It all makes sense, and um, it's quite a useful way, particularly for businesses, to um, have a clear idea of how they're traveling. Because you can make things look very good or very bad uh, by simply focusing on one set of accounts. So, for example, you could choose to not invest in your uh, infrastructure or repairing Uh, depreciation, if you like, and um, that makes your cash accounts look good, but of course you're building up a liability in future because you haven't reinvested in repairing the roof or whatever it is, and that means that you will um, uh, um, essentially be no better off. That's the beauty of the accounting system, um, the accrual accounting system. So, when you look at our overall accounts and how they're managed and how both political parties think about it, the key thing to remember here is that there is um, two key rules that both parties essentially uh, rely on, although we'll find out a bit more later on today from Nicola Willis about what Nationals view on, for example, the debt track and surpluses will be. And um, essentially, um, for a long time now, both Labor and National have agreed Uh, informally, but in a very real way, that they don't want the size of government to be much bigger than around about 30% of GDP. Now, it didn't used to be 30% of GDP under the the good or old or bad old days of Robert Muldoon. They were more like 50% of GDP, but we had all those reforms. We reduced taxes. Uh, We don't tax wealth or capital gains for everyone. And that means uh, that the size of government is sort of limited uh, to around about 30% of GDP. So uh, um, currently they're around about 31.5 or so percent. But uh, these sets of books and uh, uh, Grant Robertson have said that over time, that size of government, the size of the tax take will trend back down to 30% of GDP. And when you look at the net debt, uh, which is the um, the government's measure of how much it's got in bonds out there, after you take into account the assets it has in the New Zealand Super Fund, uh, the government has said it wants to keep below a ceiling of 30% of GDP. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because essentially, it sets in place a set a framework 
and a set of guardrails for the government, no matter which party you're in. And uh, Labor promised in 2017 that they would um, essentially abide by these rules. Um, they were slightly different. Um, the goalposts were slightly, they had a different shape in that at that point, the, uh, the um, agreed rule was that net that debt, gross debt, would not be higher than 20% of GDP, and Labor promised to get um, gross debt below 20% of GDP. And it's one of the reasons in the first two or three years of the government it didn't invest enough in housing or in transport. It's why it failed to get the 100,000 Kiwi-built homes and to start the light rail line, so-called light rail line, from Auckland CBD to the airport. So that 30-30 rule is really important, and I wanted to uh, bring that up. Okay, um, let's look at what actually happened in yesterday's preview and to give you a sense of um, how the government operates and what it's trying to do here. So the Obegel, there we go, that's the budget deficit or surplus. You can see there um, the forecast for um, the uh, the 22-23 year, which is just finished. Um, uh, it's around about $10 billion. And the surplus, the deficit falls back to become a surplus in the last year of the forecast. And remember, Labor will have got the first cut of these probably six, eight weeks ago and could see that it was, you know, deficits as far as the eye could see. So they've come up with $4 billion worth of savings that was announced, I think, three weeks ago. And that means that essentially they came up with that number. So my uh, um, guess is that uh, Grant Robertson uh, went back to his officials and said, come back to me with a number which doesn't have brackets around it at the end here. And you can see that in that uh, that little sign there. So $2.1 billion is the Obigal surplus forecast for 2627. And you can see that the net debt rises from around about 18% now to around about a peak of 22.8% by 2025. So remember that is below the government's current net debt uh, ceiling uh, forecast of 30%. And um, over time it drops to 21% by the end of the current four-year forecast track. Actually, um, when you look at what Treasury is saying for the longer run, it is actually going down to below 10% of GDP within the next um, 10 to 20 years or so. So we don't have a debt problem. And I just wanted to sort of push back a bit at the, um, um, frankly, um, hysterical comments yesterday from both the um, opposition leader, Christopher Luxon, the opposition finance spokesperson, Nicola Willis, and the ACT leader David Seymour about how this was the worst set of accounts that's ever been, that the finance minister was the worst finance minister in history, that this was a debt blowout and that um, you know the, the gov government's books were in a complete mess. That is just wrong. And how do we know it's just wrong? Because when you look at what the real professionals, the uh, credit rating agencies and the likes of uh, bond market investors, they've hardly reacted at all to this. So they haven't suddenly increased the cost of borrowing for New Zealand. We haven't seen a massive increase in the interest rate, uh, which, is, which would reflect a sell-off in bond markets. If financial markets, the real professionals, were really worried about New Zealand's 
debt situation, they would sell off sharply and would be effectively calling for the government to improve its books. You'd hear from ratings agencies to say that they were worried about uh, a downgrade, that they were forecasting a downgrade. But that's not the case. Um, we've had from Standard and & Poor's and Fitch in the last couple of weeks, and obviously they've seen early cuts of this as well, that um, they're quite happy with New Zealand's AAA credit rating. And when you look at the net debt situation and the gross debt situation, you can see that um, New Zealand's gross debt is at least 10 percentage points lower than, for example, Australia's, and a good 60 to 70% lower than other countries with similar sorts of credit ratings. So we do not have a debt problem. And frankly, it's not only um, uh, surprisingly ill-informed, but actually slightly dangerous for someone who could be the Prime Minister and the Finance Minister within a month, coming out and saying that the government's books were a complete mess and the um, finance was going finances were going to hell in a handcart. Just not true. And anyone who's a serious um, uh, analyst of crown accounts and government bonds and the debt market would um, roll their eyes when they saw those comments uh, yesterday from the opposition. Right, let's have a look at why um, the government's books are not quite as attractive as they were and that there's a one-year delay to getting back into surplus and there's an extra $9 billion of borrowing because actually the underlying economic forecasts were a little bit better than what some of the economists had forecast before the PREFU. So um, the key thing here to know is that the government... Uh, pulled the migration lever last year and said to Immigration New Zealand, uh, go for it, let in as many people as you possibly can, tick the boxes on everyone, don't do too many checks, and uh, lo and behold, 85,000 work visas were issued, Uh, the rules for working working holidaymakers and students were relaxed, we're now back to the level where international students were pre-COVID, and of course a lot of those work as well. And so we've seen an influx of uh, migrants from various countries, including the Philippines, India, China, to a lesser extent than previous, South Africa and Europe. And that um, has certainly helped increase nominal GDP. So when you think about how you you know get the economy going in a hurry, well, just bring in lots of people to do work. And remember, when they work, they pay taxes, uh, income taxes, and when they spend their money, they, the money goes back to the government in the form of GST. So get your nominal GDP growth up, <laughs> which um, is um, one way to do it. And effectively, that's been the way that both National and Labor have done it for the last 20 years. When they're in a tight spot, pull the migration lever fast, because it does a couple of things. A, it boosts the size of your economy and uh, activity. It also takes the edge off wage growth. So there's not a lot of happier employers when you do this. Secondly, um, it increases demand for rental property, so rents go up, you've got a bunch of happy landlords, and of course, overall, it increases the value of land. Um, One offsetting factor, and one that was pointed out yesterday by Treasury, is that it might actually increase inflationary pressures. Jury's out on this. Over the last uh, decade or so, very strong net migration has led to um, a softening of wage inflation and kept inflation under control. When we say inflation, we're talking about goods and services inflation, not necessarily asset prices. So um, this is worth knowing about. So what you can see there, those blue bars are in effect the extra nominal GDP in the PREFU 
economic uh, forecasts versus the um, uh, budget uh, economic forecasts in May. And what you can hear in the background, there is some construction work going on because I live in the central city and there's an awful lot of construction work going on, a lot of houses being built. Uh, and so what you can see there is that nominal GDP, by the time we get to 2026-27, is at $480 billion. And it's worth remembering that when you hear comments from the opposition leader and ACT leaders saying that somehow the government has increased its spending by hundreds of billions of dollars and an extra X billion dollars a day. Well, yeah, that's true, but so has the size of the economy. And I'll, I'll show you in a minute how... In the long run, this idea that somehow the government is addicted to spending is just not true. And the corollary of this is that uh, if you wanted to uh, go cold turkey, so to speak, you'd actually have to do a bunch of things uh, which your voters don't really want. For example, cutting New Zealand superannuation. We'll talk about that in a minute. So you can see here that what's happened in the last year or so is that the government, under pressure from those people looking at um, not having enough workers and worried about wage inflation, have pulled the migration lever that's increased the size of the economy and has certainly taken some of the pressure off wage inflation. Here we go. Here's the Treasury's forecast and the numbers for migration that we got yesterday. The blue line is the fresh forecast. The black line is the one from May in the budget. It'd be quite nice if someone inside um, Immigration New Zealand actually told Treasury what they were actually doing um, so that Treasury could have better forecasts, but that's where we are um, uh, and is part of the underlying problem we have in our economy, our political economy, that essentially we have very fast population growth, but not nearly enough investment to um, cope with that population growth. That's why we've got a $100 billion deficit in infrastructure spending with at least $100 billion in the pipeline, particularly when we're growing the um, economy uh, uh, or growing the size of the population at, at 15 to 2% per annum. So uh, there we go. That's what Treasury is now saying that we'll have for net migration over the next couple of years. And there we go, we get up to 100,000. Now, yesterday, we also got some numbers showing net migration of 92,600. That's a record high and is, in essence, the result of uh, massive numbers of work visas being issued. Remember, that also includes a lot of outflow of New Zealand citizens to Australia. Um, overall, total exits, if you like, in the churn are around about 35,000 over the last year of New Zealand citizens. So we're talking around uh, 3,000 people a month are leaving um, because they feel they have better futures or at least short-term futures overseas. Many of them don't come back. It's the reason that New Zealand's um, population of diaspora, those people who are born or became residents in New Zealand but now live overseas, is the third highest in the world. Um, we have a very high proportion of our population who actually live overseas. And um, what does this mean, therefore, for households and incomes? And I think it's worth pointing this out. You know, there's an awful lot of talk about the squeezed middle and how no one's got any money to pay the mortgage. And, well, actually, this is what Treasury is forecasting for household savings, income, and spending. So you can see here over the next three to four years, um, the blue bars are in effect how much extra cash gets put in the bank by households because they didn't spend it. Uh, yes, in the current year, there's not going to be a lot uh, left over in that gap between the light blue, the dark 
the dark blue line and the dark black line, which provides you with your savings. And what that shows you is that um, we have um, we have a we have a, a somewhat squeezed middle, and we have a really squashed bottom. But in effect, our households are largely pretty well off, particularly the ones who own homes. Even the ones who've bought homes in the last two to three years are certainly not defaulting on their mortgages. Otherwise, we'd see it in the numbers from the banks, and we don't. And they're not being put into mortgage sales. Um, the real stressed uh, people in our economy and our society are those paying rent. And remember, we have the highest proportion of stressed renters, which is deemed those people paying more than 40% of their disposable income in rent, the highest percentage of those in the world. Right. This is the other thing that's interesting in yesterday's numbers uh, is the house price inflation forecast. So this is what happens when you unleash a migration boom and you don't build enough houses. The blue line there is the forecast for house prices. And uh, earlier today, we got some numbers from the Real Estate Institute showing clearly that house prices have bounced. I suspect in part because there's now a significant chunk of the population who believe there will be a change of government, that there will be the removal of the rules around interestability, um, the opening up of uh, homes to be bought by foreign buyers for worth more than $2 million, and um, the end of uh, a whole bunch of house building by the likes of Kyngel Aura, and a freeze on development of uh, new housing, particularly if it's reliant on particular infrastructure spending. Because remember, we're going to have a freeze on new spending by NZTA Waka Kotahi and certainly by Kyngel Aura. So the new supply coming into the market will be significantly lower. Uh, in my view, uh, you'll see land prices rise 20% overnight if there's a clear National Act win on uh, October the 14th. Could be a fun uh, open home on the Sunday. Right. I just want to push back again at this idea that this is the worst set of accounts you've ever seen, that Grant Robertson is the worst finance minister you've ever seen, and that um, we're all going to hell on the handcart. Hand There's a debt monster uh, lurking at the front of Parliament. <laughs> well, let's have a look at the actual numbers that Treasury has um, put out. Right, so yes, there is an increased amount of borrowing that's going on. So between 2023 and 2027, we're going to rise from 70 billion to about 102 billion. You can see there in that number there, 102 billion. So that's up about 30 billion. So what's actually happening to our net worth? Well, uh, that's actually rising. So what that means is that with that extra investment that's happening, the value of, new, of the government's assets, they are rising faster than the debt. So when you actually look at the net worth, uh, that is, is rising. Uh, in fact, uh, when you look at an even longer time frame, it's it's a significant rise in net worth. So we didn't hear that reported yesterday that you know the, the government's worth a lot more. Now there's some people who say, well, you can't sell. Let's say all the schools or all the hospitals or all the roads. Who's going to buy it? It's true. It's a lot of money, a lot of money. But you know this is uh, how you measure the strength of a balance sheet. What is the value of the assets? Uh, now, for a company or a person or an organization, um, the implication is that if you have lots of assets and you get into trouble, maybe you could sell some of the assets to get yourself out of trouble. 
And in effect, that's what our government did during the late 1980s and through the early 1990s. It got itself out of trouble by selling state assets. So, um, yes, you do need to keep on eye on what's happening, not just with your debt, but with your assets and work out what the net number is. And our net worth, uh, according to Treasury, is going to rise from $191 billion in 2023 to $198 billion. And you'll see in another slide later on that uh, there's been a significant increase in the long run. Um, right, so just to sort of drill down a bit into you know what's happening with the structure of the government's revenues and spending, and you know why we've got this relatively low share of GDP um, occupied by the government in terms of revenues and uh, taxes, uh, revenues and spending. So um, this chart shows you uh, what's happening with um, overall numbers over the next four years in terms of movements in Crown tax revenue, so how much is tax increasing. So source deductions, that means income tax, uh, that is rising, rising by $16 billion over the next four years. That's what happens when you get plenty of nominal GDP and nominal wage growth. People go up in the tax thresholds and um, you get some extra money. And that's why the whole issue of the tax thresholds and uh, adjusting for inflation or wage inflation is so hot. Uh, there's a natural tendency with fiscal drag to essentially increase the size of, uh, the increase the size of the tax take unless you, the income tax take, unless you change those thresholds. So that's 16 billion. GST goes up 7.4 billion over the four years. Again, we have a very high reliance on income tax and GST um, for the government's, government's revenues. Corporate tax goes up a bit and uh, net other person's tax uh, is um, bits and pieces of people overseas and things not worth focusing on too much. Uh, interestingly, resident withholding tax drops. That's because of lower interest rates forecast over the next three or four years. And this is an interesting one, other taxes, right? So that is actually things like alcohol um, levies, um, tobacco levies, and also uh, various um, uh, taxes on imports. So, for example, the free trade agreements with the United Kingdom and Europe actually cost us hundreds of millions of dollars because we won't be able to put uh, levies and duties on the imports that come into the country. Something you don't hear about much with the discussion about free trade agreements. Everyone point, uh, points to it as a positive, but actually in a cash sense, you lose a bunch of money because you're not putting uh, duties on imports. So what happens there is that the other taxes line that drops from 1.2 billion a year to 0.3 billion a year by the end of end of that time. Now, one of the major reasons for this is people are smoking less, and therefore there's not as much come money coming in in tobacco uh, levies and excise uh, taxes. So uh, that's an interesting issue. That's one way you could um, increase taxes <laughs> by increasing the taxes on the very few smokers who are left. Uh, you do wonder whether the rise in vaping is as much about a lack of taxation of vaping as much as anything else. Right, so that's worth knowing about on this sort of revenue side. How is it changing? What's going on? And where are the gaps? Essentially, we need a wealth tax. Uh, that's an unbalanced uh, form of government. 
Right. Now, just, just to give you a sense of the overall structure of uh, the government's books and uh, its participation in the economy and to call bullshit on this line about addicted to spending and the size of government's ballooning and we have an incredibly high government. So what you see there are uh, three things. Firstly, revenues and um core revenues and total revenues uh, in terms of dollars billion. Now you can see it's rising. Why is that? Because GDP is rising. So the key thing to really look at is what's happening to your core crown tax revenues as a percentage of GDP. So what you can see is that basically it's been around 28 to 31% or so for a couple of decades. And this is um, the bipartisan rule that we keep the size of government around about 30% of GDP. It's why we don't have a wealth tax. It's why we have, whenever we've done any tax reform, it's generally been of a switch kind. And um, essentially, this sets the baseline for all the governments. The reason we don't tend to increase the size of our health system much, that education is constantly squeezed. It's essentially because there's a sinking lid on the government constantly to try to keep that dotted line at or about 30% of GDP. In my view, when you are growing your economy at 2%, growing your population at 2% per year for a significant amount of time, you cannot afford to have a government only 30% of GDP because the government is the one that does most of the investment in infrastructure and provides a lot of the services. If you have a young growing economy, you need to put a lot of money into investment, not just government investment, but but um, private investment. And with the incentives that we have, which bias um, people, savers, households in particular, to save for residential land, i.e. buy residential land rather than investing in a business or investing in a company, what you end up is with a capital light economy. And um, to change that, you really need to change the structure of revenues. You need to include a wealth tax. You need to um, do more infrastructure investment. And um, we've seen these problems through the years. Right. Addicted to spending. Let's have a look then at where all this spending growth is coming from. You will have heard the opposition say, you know, tens of billions of dollars is being spent. The government's addicted to spending. Well, where is this extra spending? And what would you do if you were on top of, if you were in government? How would you get, get that down? Well, before you you know, get too high and mighty about what's happening with government spending. Look at where the real growth in government spending is. So have a look at the top bubble there. $17.7 billion in New Zealand superannuation payments in the last year. That rises to $26.5 billion by 2026-27. Most of the growth in government spending is pre-cooked, untouchable, NZ super. Um, that's where most of the growth is. Uh, you've got some uh, spending on job seekers, so the dole, and supported living payments, so that means um, sickness benefits. Uh, and that is, most would expect, untouchable. Also, and this is worth knowing, um, the government is currently spending, when you add up $2.6 billion by the end of the period on accommodation assistance, that's the accommodation supplement, $900 million dollars a year. That's more than double what we see now in what they what the government estimates as hardship assistance. So this is people who basically they can't 
once they've paid their rent, they don't have money for anything else. They have to go to MSD to get money. And then finally, you've got the income-related rent subsidy. That is the um, subsidy that's f- uh, funneled through Kaingaora to people who are living in Kaingaora properties. What that says is that the government is going to be spending upwards of $4 billion a year by 26-27 helping to pay the rent to private landlords and, uh, and effectively uh, holding up uh, those um, subsidies, I suppose you could call it, for uh, rental properties. So just imagine if you could, instead of using that $4 billion to um, fill the gaps and give it to landlords, you used it to uh, build some new houses, particularly if you use that $4 billion to um, leverage up. So remember, mortgage rates, uh, well, um, government borrowing costs about 4% or so over the long run. So that means if you can afford $4 billion, that means you can afford to pay the, the bill on $100 billion of debt. You could build a lot of houses with $100 billion. Just saying. Um, so um, uh, let's have a look then at what the government's doing with its capital spending because um, you could say, well, one of the reasons they've got all this extra debt is they're doing enormous amounts of capital spending. And that's true. There is a lot of capital spending. But what's changed in the last year or so? So you'd think if we had a 2% growth in our population that there would be a lot more extra spending on infrastructure, right, to cope with all these extra people we're going to have. No. So what you see here is the extra spending on capital as measured by Treasury between uh and commitments made between May and now. And what you can see is that the extra new capital spending in each of those years ramps up to the gloriously high number of $1.9 billion. And remember, we've got a $480 billion economy. So this is 0.3% extra in capital expenditure by the government um, by then. We are nowhere near investing enough for all these extra people we've got coming in. And that is the basic problem we have. Now, just to finalise here, just to push back at the um, the doomsters that say the government's numbers are out of control, I've put some circles in there and you can go back and have a look at the PDF that I've got in the email if this is too small for your eyes, and fair enough, it is too small for my eyes too. What you can see there is that net core ground out debt between 2013 and 2027, yes, has risen from around about... Um, 98 billion to um, 190 billion or so. And um, we've also seen the net worth of the government rise 128 billion. So what we're talking about here is a an increase in debt that's been more than um, uh, matched by an increase in assets. What's wrong with that? Now, you could argue, oh, you know, you can't sell these assets. Well, that's not how um, bond investors and ratings agencies are looking at it. And um, I'd, I'd, I'd love for anyone to accuse the Treasury of uh, making the numbers up or somehow making them look good. They've got some um, proud actuaries and um, auditors there going over the numbers who would be happy to defend it. And uh, certainly they're as good as anyone else's. So the point I want to make here is that the government's books are not in trouble using the current measures of the government's books. And when the opposition says that uh, they are in trouble, they're not. It's just plain wrong. And it's embarrassing 
and dangerous for the um, people who could be the prime minister and the finance minister in 30 days' time to be saying stuff like this. Um, they certainly won't be saying it the day after. Uh, so, but we do have some issues with the uh, liabilities being built up inside our society and our economy for the long run. Now, one thing you'll hear people say is, oh, think about all the debt. It's going to land on those kids. Well, um, that is true if you think that um, there are no other debts out there and that by taking on financial debt, so uh, borrowing uh, through bonds right now, you are effectively... um, uh, uh, you don't have a problem to solve in the future. Because remember, if you choose not to um, repair the roof and uh, uh, and that saves you some money this year, what happens next year when it rains heavily and uh, the roof has a hole in it and it wrecks the house? So you've effectively got a liability in your books for next year, even though your cash accounts look good. And this is the guts of the problem here in our society. We've been running at one and a half to two percent population growth for twenty years. We've been underinvesting, underinvesting heavily. It's coming up to bite us in all sorts of ways. The most expensive housing in the world, the most stressed, um, lower quintile of the population, uh, all sorts of problems with people's people with health, mental health, physical health, diabetes, health. Um, uh, chest conditions, skin conditions. It's the kids whose mum and da- mums and dads are so stressed and bouncing from private rental to private rental, who are not being educated properly. They're the ones that are not eating properly. They're the ones that are not being looked after. They're the ones that are costing enormous amounts of money, apart from anything else, apart from the grief, uh, by having to go to the hospital every winter. Um, they're the people who, up until a month or two ago, were having to pay for pharmaceuticals um, with the pharmaceutical fee. Now that they don't have to pay, they're getting their pharmaceuticals, and therefore they're not ending up um, in the hospital. Same with dental care. So all of these um, savings now, the um, penny-wise, uh, uh, pound-foolish problem is very much there. So... Um, my argument is that if we're going to have one and a half to two percent population growth, we should be upfront with everyone about it, and we should invest for it. At the moment, we are not talking about the one and a half to two percent population growth. We're using net migration and underinvestment to make our books look good now, and loading up enormous uncosted liabilities in the future. I'm talking here about the emissions credits, which were not again in the books. Uh, yesterday, um, over $20 billion worth of emissions credits if we have a carbon price over $100 a barrel, dollars a ton, <laughs> slip of the tongue there, um, and that is um, going to land on a whole bunch of people. It's going to land on a whole bunch of people, obviously, with uh, climate change and with people stressed, sick, not very productive Those are the uncosted liabilities that are in our accounts. I'm Bernard Hickey. Uh, That has been a presentation uh, for a bit of a a bit of a um, a test. See if this works, and I welcome your feedback. I haven't had a chance to look at the chat yet on the Riverside, but I will, and I uh, look forward to your feedback as well because I'll be copying this into a video and an audio and putting it out with today's email. 
Kakite Ono. And thank you to paying subscribers for the Kaka to allow me to have an awful lot of fun with charts and tables and PowerPoint and that sort of thing. <laughs> See you later.